Thank you again. That sounded wonderful. Good morning again. Last week, Pastor Eric mentioned that he's the president of the Fergus Falls Pastors Group. You all seem to like that. So I've started referring to him as Mr. President when I talk to him. And hopefully, you know, his birthday is only a few weeks away, and I think Cornerstone One would be a good message for him. But he is away this morning. If you miss him, he will be here tonight for our evening service preaching. So come and enjoy that, and we'll be continuing in James tonight. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your scripture. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for your goodness to your people throughout time. I pray for Pastor Eric as he's away today teaching. I pray for him and his family just so that can be a good time of enjoying each other's company. And I pray for our new president, Lord. I pray for guidance and wisdom for him, for the whole administration, that things can be done, Lord, with a fear of you, Lord, and in submission to you and in humility to you. And I pray for unity in our nation, Lord, so divided. I pray that the gospel can be preached from sea to shining sea, Lord, and that that can be what brings people together to share the love and truth of Christ. Bless our time this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are doing a series to start this year off. It's kind of an overview of the Bible and the major, some of the major passages and themes of the Bible. Today we'll be talking about an event called the Passover. Last week, Pastor Eric talked about Abraham. God had made a promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So included in God's promise to Abraham, he would make him a great nation. Abraham and his descendants would be a blessing, that he would have descendants. In Genesis 15, God restates the covenant and the promise and elaborates on the covenant. And there's more of an emphasis on land that God had promised. And it's in that context that God also says to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. And now we transition from Abraham to Exodus. Abraham eventually has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the three patriarchs of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. The one who's next in line that leads to Christ from him is Judah. But Judah is sometimes overshadowed in the book of Genesis by his brother Joseph. The story of Joseph is in Genesis chapters 37 and then 39 through 50. The story of Joseph is a classic in the Bible. 
betrayed by his own brothers, enslaved in Egypt, betrayed again in Egypt. But with a God-given ability to prophesy dreams, Joseph is able to foretell of a future time of abundance and then a time of famine. And this knowledge, preparing during the time of abundance for the time of famine, is what saves Egypt. Joseph's brothers were struggling in the famine. And in spite of what they had done, Joseph was in a position to save them too. We like to look at the story of Joseph as an example of how God works evil for good. And while it certainly does that, two other things that are significant to this story. It preserves Judah, who's next in line to lead to Christ. It's why he survives. And second, it's what brings Israel into Egypt. And Genesis ends there. Exodus picks up several generations later. And the Israelites are in Egypt still. The Israelites had grown in numbers. And because of that, the Egyptian pharaoh was concerned about the growth of the Israelites. And so he enslaves the people. Again, why were the Israelites in Egypt? Because that's what God had told to Abraham. And because they had come when Joseph had saved them. Then in Exodus 2, God acts on the promise he had made to Abraham. We see the birth of Moses, who is called upon by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Pharaoh won't let them, though. In Egypt, the Pharaoh was viewed as being a god. And they were polytheistic. They had many gods. But the Lord God, he, he brings a series of plagues on the Egyptians for not allowing the Israelites to leave. The first plague is turning the Nile River red, hitting them in the very lifeblood of their economy and society. And part of what these plagues are doing is it's showing the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods before the Lord God. They're powerless because they don't exist. The second plague is a plague of frogs. The Egyptians actually had a fertility goddess that looked like a frog. Egyptians had various deities for harvests and livestock, all of them impacted by the plagues. So Exodus is a battle between God and the anti-god, Pharaoh, and the rest of the Egyptian hierarchy of deities. Pharaoh continues putting himself into direct opposition of the Lord. And throughout all of these plagues, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's wrecking Egypt. After the plagues, the Lord ultimately restores order, again showing his dominion and power. But throughout these plagues, throughout these various warnings, Pharaoh continues to oppose God. He doesn't free the Israelites. So after all of those plagues, the Israelites still have not been freed. 
And God explains the ultimate and final plague that he will bring upon the Egyptians. And that's what brings us to Exodus chapter 12. The story of the Passover. And we'll spend our time this morning looking at the Passover, its fulfillment, and its future. And the main idea, I think, of our text today is that the Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. So at the beginning of Exodus 12, it's giving the initial prescription for the Passover. And I, I certainly invite you to, to turn your Bibles to Exodus 12. Some of our key verses I'll have up on slides, but, but maybe not all of them. The Passover is a monumental and transformational event. We'll learn that it, it changed the Jewish calendar, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Think about the impact that Jesus has had on the, the calendars of the Western world. Our understanding of time, of what year it is, is based on Jesus coming into our world. But before that time, God established the calendar based on this great event. Each household was to select a lamb. If a family was too small or couldn't afford a lamb, they would pair up. But it was household to household. There's an inherent familial aspect to Passover. And there was a sacrifice of a lamb that was necessary. In verse 7 it says, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Here it's giving specific instructions about where to put the blood. After sacrificing the lamb, they put the blood on the sides of the door and on the lintel, the top of the door frame. The instructions of the Passover aim at speed. You roast the meat because that's the fastest way to cook it. Unleavened bread is made without a leavening agent, such as yeast, which causes the bread to rise. But to, for the bread to rise, that takes time. The Israelites had to be ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. While the Egyptians were tyrannical, while they had interfered with the people of God in worshiping God, for generations, Egypt had been home. Certainly, for as long as any of the Israelites could remember, it was familiar. Leaving what's familiar for the unknown, it's a scary thing. But walking with God is always the right way to go. When we walk with the Lord, there are times when we don't know the next step. It might be easier sometimes to, to trust a distant step, like heaven. But on the next steps, 
on the next phase of the journey, when we don't see how it's all going to work out, when we don't know the solution to the problem, it can be scary to leave what's familiar. We face situations in life where there is no other way but to trust in God. But when we walk with God, he will always bring us to where we need to go. Back in our text in Exodus 12, verses 9 and 10, gives further instructions on consuming the Passover lamb. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Continuing in verse 11. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. Every part of this instruction is meant to indicate the quick fashion in which the Israelites would be called to depart from the land. They were supposed to be wearing sandals. They would carry the staff, which was something meant for outside purposes. Even the speed at which they were to consume the food was to be hastily. The verse ends, it is the Lord's Passover. And Passover could not be a more appropriate name for this holiday. Because on this first Passover, the faithful to the Lord were passed over and their lives were spared. Verse 12 indicates that there isn't much time. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In this event, the firstborn are struck down. Pharaoh had been warned many times of the consequences. The text says that this was also a judgment on the gods of Egypt, the non-existent gods of Egypt. The various plagues had almost all resulted in death, either of livestock or vegetation or crops. Their Egyptian pantheon couldn't protect them. And when it came to human life and death, their deities couldn't save them, because it is the Lord who is sovereign over life and death. And striking dead the firstborn, God surely could have taken any life. He is in control. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood was taken as a sign that a person trusted in the Lord. It's a matter of trusting what the Lord has promised. To not put the blood on the doorframe would show that someone didn't take the Lord seriously. Didn't take his word seriously. It's striking to me in our society when people want to make God just whatever we say he is or want him to be. That how we speak for, for God how he is. There was no room for that in the Passover. Well, God doesn't do that. Just be good and, and that's what's going to say. No. Trust in the word of the Lord. It's not that the blood in itself is what saved a person, but it was an outward sign of an inward faith. In verse 14, 
It's going back to establishing the annual Passover tradition. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So it would be an ongoing part of the tradition to eat unleavened bread. Jewish people would go to great lengths to remove any leaven from their home. Leaven is oftentimes taken as a, as a symbol for sin. Multiple New, New Testament passages make analogies where leaven or yeast spread, and they're almost always negative. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Paul's talking about tolerating or affirming sinful behavior. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's getting at the way how sin expands or grows. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees who are opposing him and tells his followers to beware the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast of unbelief and doubt. Back in Exodus twelve seventeen. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Verse 17 officially names it as the feast of unleavened bread. The feast of unleavened bread is the entire week-long feast. Passover is the first day of the feast. Verse 21 represents a shift in the story. Everything we've covered so far has been told to Moses and Aaron. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Now he assembles the elders of the Israelite community and starts giving them instructions. They're told to slaughter the Passover lambs. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning. This is what hyssop looks like, at least according to Google. And uh, it, it's got like a, a branch-like shape and could be used to sprinkle the blood on the door and on the door frame. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The destroyer mentioned here is the angel of the Lord, mentioned in 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, who's given the ability to take life when given authority by God to do so. Text continues, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. Verse 25 is partially getting at the purpose of the Passover. It's a catalyst to the Israelites being freed from Egypt so that they can be taken to the land that the Lord has promised 
in the time of Abraham. Verse 26 gets at the fact that the people must remind their children of the Passover event and to teach their kids about it and to explain the salvation that came from the Lord for his people in that event. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. In verse 29, we come to the event where the firstborn are struck down. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Nine plagues. And in the tenth plague, it hits Egypt the hardest. This isn't arbitrarily picking on the Egyptians. It is divine retribution. God had made a promise to Abraham. And Pharaoh was working against the plans of the Lord. It is God who is the author of life. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. At the beginning of Exodus, Pharaoh is distrustful of the Israelites, like we've said. And he actually instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill the firstborn males. Exodus 1.16 When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives can't bring themselves to do this. But Pharaoh eventually figures out that something is amiss. And so he gives a decree to his citizens in Exodus 1.22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. And again we see Pharaoh's opposition to God. Peter Enns calls this nothing less than a challenge to God's creation mandate in Genesis 1. Enns also points out that these plagues are undoing creation. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. But among the plagues, it tarnishes the land and vegetation. Animals are created, but the plagues have afflicted the animal kingdom. The water of the river is no longer a source for life, but death. On the first day of creation, God said, let there be light. In the second to last plague, it's darkness. On the final day of creation, God creates man. And in the last of the plagues, God takes life away. There's an element of collective guilt here for the Egyptians. After this, they're sent packing. Chapter 12, verse 31. Then he, referring to Pharaoh, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh would actually try to change his mind. But God was with the Israelites and they were delivered from Egypt. When they crossed the Red Sea. 
Verse 38 of chapter 12 says that the Israelites were accompanied by a mixed multitude. And this seems to imply that there were actually some Egyptians who had come to faith in the Lord. I mean, the traditional Egyptian gods weren't really doing a good job. And if they had also made the Passover sacrifice and put the blood on their door frames and the lintel, this would have shown a trust in the deliverance that came from the Lord. So the Egyptians were not without opportunity. And that's the same situation everyone faces, whether or not to trust in the Lord. We don't have to put blood on our doorposts to save us. But ultimately, that was an act of faith. And that hasn't changed. We too are called to trust and believe in the Lord, the mighty God who delivered his people from slavery, and the mighty God who delivers you from your sins. That's the original Passover and what happened. Our second and third points will be quicker. As it is clear in this passage, Passover was meant to be celebrated annually, and the Jews did. An annual Passover dinner is called a Seder, which comes from the Hebrew word for order. In 3,500 years, rabbinical tradition, other Old Testament passages and teachings, helped to form the ceremony of the Seder. Some of these pieces can be traced back to the original Passover. Again, others came from Jewish history and rabbinical tradition. Once the Israelites were in the, in the land, for instance, and after the temple was built, this impacted Passover traditions. When you had the temple, the lambs were sacrificed at the temple. But what didn't change was that the people could only sacrifice lambs that were perfect. I think that it's worth spending so much time talking about Passover because I think it can help to get a greater context for understanding the events surrounding the death of Jesus. In the Gospels, the time of the death of Christ revolves around Passover. And that's not a coincidence. Jesus would be associated at the time where the lambs were slaughtered. Now, sacrifices happened throughout the year in the Jewish calendar. But Passover was such a significant holiday for the Jewish people. Where the lambs were sacrificed in remembrance of the freedom that God had brought Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for Passover. Jerusalem, the city within the Roman Empire that was the epicenter of Jewish culture. At Passover, thousands of lambs would have been slaughtered during that time. Jewish people would have been coming in from all over the Roman Empire. If you can think of the story early in the Gospel of Luke, the one where Jesus is a kid and his parents forget him for a couple days, that story begins... Luke 2.41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, because that's what good Jews did. We see many traditions of the Seder and the Last Supper. Some of them are small things. In the Gospel accounts, it talks about Jesus reclining at a table. Jesus wasn't sitting in a lazy boy. He was on a couch that he was lying on that was a part of the Seder tradition. They had been enslaved in Egypt, but being able to lie down showed the freedom that you had. It showed the security that you had. It showed the status that you had. 
in the Gospel of John when Jesus is alluding to his betrayer. He says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. I know that most of you read that and think there's like a bowl of olive oil on the table like they're eating at Bella Cucina. The Last Supper was not at an Italian restaurant. It's a Seder meal, and what he's most likely referring to is something called haroset, which is a mixture of apple and cinnamon and nuts. That sounds pretty good, but you would mix that with horseradish. That does not sound good. And basically make a sandwich with that and matzo bread. As part of the Seder, you'd take unleavened bread. It looks kind of like a cracker. And you'd break the bread. With bread with yeast, you don't really brick it, you tear it apart. But unleavened bread is brittle, it cracks. In the Gospel of Luke, at the Last Supper, it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By the time of Christ, for over a thousand years of Seder dinners, bread had been broken. Unleavened bread, just like the Israelite forefathers had eaten when fleeing from Egypt. The body of Jesus, given for you, given for your sins, given for your forgiveness. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. What more fitting words could there be at a Seder, a meal revolving around remembrance? About retelling the story of God saving his people by the blood of the Lamb. Remembering what God has done. Remembering what Jesus has done. Remembering the sins that he's redeemed you from. Remembering his body that he gave for you. Remembering his death that he died for you. Remembering the grace that he offered you. Remembering his gospel. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Seder dinner involves four glasses of wine. This seems to have either been the second or third glass. But how profound it is. Wine drank in remembrance of the Passover. Jesus takes the wine. He blesses it. He says it is the new covenant in his blood at the Seder dinner. It clearly points back to the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood that was poured on the doorposts. And it points forward to the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. The blood of the true lamb. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true Lamb of God. The Lamb who took the penalty for sins. The one who was sacrificed for the salvation of God's people. And by trusting in him, and having faith in him, that puts the blood on the doorpost of your heart. On the first Passover, there would not have been a pardon for a person who didn't put the blood on the doorpost. It wasn't that the blood saved them. God saved them. But to not put the blood on the door was to show that a person didn't have faith in the Lord and didn't trust his word. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He's the lamb talked about in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is that Passover lamb. He is the one who took the penalty of sins. A lamb couldn't do that. It was meant to point ahead to the true Passover lamb, the true lamb of God, who bore the wrath of God for our sins. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 7, I was off on a slide. 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then we come to verse 12 in Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore for the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So it's talking about the suffering servant in Isaiah hundreds of years before the time of Christ. It calls him the perfect lamb. And Isaiah says he poured out his soul to death. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not arbitrary. It's not just using the random things that are around. It's all symbolic. It takes symbols important to the first Passover, the first time that God had delivered Israel, and it reminds us of the new Passover for the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The Passover passage in Exodus 12 says that the lamb that was used had to be without blemish. Jesus is the ultimate lamb without blemish, a life lived perfectly. The blood of both was put on wooden beams, the doorpost and the cross. Both the Passover lamb and Jesus were killed publicly. On the day when Jesus was crucified for our sins, in the Jewish concept of time, the day ends at sunset. The next day was going to be the day of rest. Jesus and the two robbers who were crucified on his sides next to him, they had to die before sunset. And the Gospel of John records, the Gospel of John records, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And he continues in verse 36 of John 20. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Exodus 12:46. No bones were broken on Jesus when he died. In the Passover passage, it says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. Exodus gives specific instructions for how to consume the Passover lamb. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with it, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Instructions on how to eat the Passover lamb. And at the Last Supper, Jesus gives instructions on how to eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. 
Jesus wasn't putting his own twist on the Passover. It was the Lord revealing the true meaning of Passover. It was him showing something that had been part of the plan all along. The Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. But you have to believe it. You have to accept his blood. You can't make it some abstract force, but the personal God who came to save you from your sins. The personal God who gave his body and shed his blood for you to accept what he has done by faith. Final point, this is basically the conclusion this morning. The Passover's future. In the opening chapters of the Bible's final book, Revelation, Jesus has been very active with his churches. In Revelation 4, the Apostle John is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. This wondrous sight to behold. But Jesus is absent until chapter 5. And John sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lamb had been slain, but he has risen. And because the lamb of God that was slain for sins of man rose, that is our hope that we can see him before God in that throne room. In Revelation 19, there is a vision of a great wedding feast. And who is the groom? Again, it is the lamb. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. God is an inviting God. Jews and Egyptians alike were able to turn to him and trust him on the first Passover. At Passover time, at the Seder, Jesus told of his body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. And he invited us to that meal to accept it. And the next day, he was sacrificed as the Passover lamb. And at the final feast, at the end of time, we are invited to join the lamb at that feast as well. It is he who invites us, and it is he who pays for our admission. And all we have to do is accept it. As the Israelites trusted in the deliverance of the Lord and put the blood on their doors, we too can know that we have sinned and are freely forgiven when we accept the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, slain for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord saves by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that is in Christ and Christ alone and for that goodness. Let it be our, our meditation. Let us continually remember what Jesus has done for us. Let that be the basis by which we live. Living in the light of the gospel and the great love that Jesus had for us. In Jesus' name, amen.